Hartsville, Hartsville, the happening town where art abounds. Hartsville, Hartsville, from Asheville town where art abounds. Hartsville, Hartsville, feeling mountain high and inspired in North Carolina. That's where you'll find us, amazing artists and designers. Oh yeah, Hartsville from Asheville. Welcome, folks. So today you're listening to the Artsville USA podcast. We come to you from Asheville, North Carolina, and I'm your host, Louise Glickman. With me today, you'll hear from local auctioneer, senior vice president of Brunk Auctions, Lauren Brunk, and opportunities to learn about buying and selling in the secondary arts market. So stay tuned for this exciting and informative interview. Here I am again. This is Louise welcoming you to Artsville, USA, where we celebrate American contemporary arts and crafts from Asheville and beyond. Our monthly podcast introduces you to world-class movers and makers, their art and craft, and their unique careers. You can learn more at Artsville, USA, or you can hear our podcasts also on major podcast channels. So Artsville uniquely markets creativity the world as a platform primarily for the talents of Western North Carolina artists and craftsmen who want to show, sell, and tell about their work. Our distinctive blend of Artsville programming includes our virtual gallery of artists, monthly podcasts, newsletters, and a proven menu of entertaining and enlightening events, plus lots of educational programs. Today's podcast is powered by Arterial and our partners at Crew West Studios in Los Angeles, extending our reach to listeners worldwide. So please add your name to our email under subscribe on the website. Now, let's get started. It's very exciting for me today to introduce you to Lauren Brunk. She is an auctioneer. She is a specialist in Southern art. She handles community outreach, all of this and more, as Senior Vice President at Brunk Auctions, a family auction house. This auction house specializes in the sale of fine jewelry, art, Asian art, my great love, antique furniture, coins, and countless other areas of collecting. And it ranges from contemporary art to antiquities. Excellent and connoisseurship is the hallmark of Brunk, and they have very consistent and thoughtful client services and have done this for over 40 years in business. I was fortunate enough to have my first visit with Lauren at Brunk a few months back and was absolutely blown away by the process, but also a little intimidated, and so I wanted to learn more, and that's what we're going to do today. Lauren, first of all, I'd like to talk a little bit about the secondary art market. This is all I know. 
that art markets can be divided into a primary and a secondary market. The primary market is where works are first sold after they've been created by the artist. And of course, this is the market that Artsville has spoken about a great deal in its two years of podcasting. Now we want to know about the secondary market, which my understanding tells me deals with any subsequent resales, whether through a dealer, a private transaction, or at auction. So starting with this very simple definition, I would like Lauren to please explain about the auction market through her work at Bronk. Lauren, I'm turning this whole subject over to you right now. Thanks, Louise. It's actually not that intimidating, but it can be a little confusing if it's not something that's familiar to you. So you're right. There is the primary market that tends to be a gallery or the artist themselves. And then what we will do often is work with this secondary market where something has achieved a level of success that warrants offering it at auction. Now, locally, we certainly have worked with plenty of regional artists and national artists that are living. It's a little harder to get a level, a price level, for an artist whose work is still evolving people say, oh, they're dead. You know, now it must be worth more. Well, you know, not necessarily, but it can be a little tricky with a live artist because the body of their work is still evolving. But we do sell collections that come out of estates or folks that are just ready to move on to something else that include the craft and art of folks from our region and, you know, artists that are still working. So, you know, I'm a novice Uh at this, and I want to understand more without this feeling of intimidation. Uh And I know for a fact that art buyers are getting used to purchasing art online. You know, this started in COVID when people couldn't leave home, and now they're very comfortable, although I'm not comfortable buying art without seeing it in person. So how has this impacted how Brunk Auction sells art? Well, it's been a pretty dramatic change. There was a time when we printed catalogs where we had viewings that hundreds of people came to when the sale room was packed with locals and dealers from all over the region. And of course, with COVID, that slowed down because nobody could travel. But it was waning a little bit before then. Now, we have all of our catalogs online, digital images, and we have a lot of digital images, and they can be better than what you would see with the naked eye. They might be better at giving you information than what you would see in the sale room. So people have become really comfortable with trusting the photography and trusting really the connoisseurship skills of our in-house specialists. What percentage of the people who buy or collect through Brunk, do it online versus now come to the showroom? I can't give you an exact number, but I would say it's probably 75 to 80, maybe 85 percent is online or through a left bid or through a phone bid. And that's by number rather than by value. Okay. So 
tell me a little bit about who are the buyers and who are the sellers? So the sellers are people that are just downsizing or moving or looking for a change. It might be an estate. So in other words, someone who was a collector who passed on. We also work with a lot of institutions that are reevaluating their storage scenarios. So museums may have accepted things along the way that they now realize are not in keeping with their mission, and it's become harder and harder for them to care for them. So institutions are also deaccessioning, and those are some really fun sales because these things have been kind of squirreled away in a museum for decades and decades often. So those are the people who provide the things that you sell. Tell me about who shows up at the auctions Mm -hmm. or shows up online and what that process is about. And that's also a really broad swath of people. So again, you do have institutions, you have museums that are looking at broadening the scope. So in recent times, you know, there's been a big move among American institutions to look more carefully at their collections and examining people that are outside of what they've traditionally collected, whether it's people of color or less well-represented folks in our country or around the world. So you have that from the institutional side, but also collectors, I think, are beginning to trust their gut and just go for things that they like, looking more broadly, not necessarily just at the things that are the accepted, you know, these are the things you should have in your collection. So it's become kind of wild and unpredictable. All kinds of people buying things from a few hundred dollars to over a million dollars. It's a really broad range. Well, you gave me the most eye-opening and beautiful catalog Mm -hmm. from Brunk. I cherish it. (laughs) And it's very special. It's my (laughs) bedtime reading, to tell you the truth. (laughs) I don't know, Louise. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not into detective stories. What can I say? But anyway, I'm particularly interested in Asian art. I'm a bit of a Japanophile, both in my art purchasing style And also my own personal art, what I do, has very much a Japanese influence, some of it. So I realized that just sitting at an auction is a very, very revealing process, almost like looking at history and travel. Mm -hmm. I was recently in Kentucky and was fortunate enough to go to a horse auction sale in Lexington and was absolutely blown away. I was fixated. I've also been a rider and shown horses in my past life. So I was just blown away. So I'm interested a little bit about the curatorial process. Sure. How does that work? Yeah, it's theater. It's less theater than it used to be because so many people are watching online. But essentially what we are providing is this space for the story of the thing to be retold. So our catalogs, we do still print catalogs from time to time. And what we're trying to do there is help a potential buyer contextualize this thing, this item, this painting, this work, who made it, who used it. 
and why, who owned it. So there's a whole aspect in the cataloging that's called the provenance. That's the history of ownership. That's very important because it can tell you, well, first of all, it can tell you that it's real because it's been in these collections. It wasn't just slapped together a few days ago, but also did it stay where it was made? Did it travel the world? And then why would it have gone from place to place? Did it end up an institution? Did it descend in the family? Did it come from an archaeological dig? There are all kinds of ways that things come to market. And the path that it takes to get to market from original user is fascinating. And it really, that's what tells us the story of individual people in our country, in our world, in our region, you know, wherever this thing came. It really helps to bring the reality of how things were used to light by looking at at the path they've taken. How do you research the provenance? Do you have a staff of special curators or specialists? We do. That do this? We do. We have a fantastic specialist staff. Some have curatorial background in museums. Some have research background. They come from all different places, but they're fantastic. And there are a lot of different ways to research them. Some of that information comes from the person who's owned it. Some we can dig up in other ways. And we don't always have time to really dig in as much as we would like, because we might have 800 things in an auction every other month. So there's only so much we can do. But from time to time, you find a real fun gem that you can sink your teeth into and really tell the full story. Well, I know that you in particular do outreach to the museums and that you go to a lot of conferences, you do a lot of networking. This is all part of your presentation, your branding, your sales. And I think your service as really thoughtful auction house Can you tell me a little bit about that experience? Well, I can. And I would say part of it is really about the foundation of Brunk Auctions. So it was founded by my father-in-law, Bob Brunk, and he was an anthropologist and a teacher and a woodworker and a collector. And he started Brunk Auctions as a way to kind of bring those skills and that storytelling to the auction business. My husband, Andrew, and I, we are both trained in American material culture. So looking at the history of a particular person or region through the objects. So we kind of come at it from a slightly academic perspective, but none of us really wanted to be full-time curators. We love the hustle and bustle of all the things that come through. So you know, we have been able to bring both of those things to bear in what we do. And it's nice because people know that we are looking thoughtfully at these objects really as markers for the history of where they came from. So what about a museum? We've talked about things that they might want to place up to auction, which I guess as proceeds goes straight to the bottom line of that museum. The proceeds will go towards acquisitions. So that's something within the museum field, Mm -hmm. that if you sell something, you can't use it for operating expenses. You can use it for other acquisitions. 
So let's talk a little bit about their coming to you for mm-hmm. acquisitions. Yes. And that is something, you know, we love those conversations with curators when they'll say, I'm really interested in expanding such and such an area of collecting. And what we have seen recently is that there's a mandate for museums to be more representational of people from different regions, people of color. And there's a kind of scramble to try and catch up and bring these sorts of things into the collections and learn how to have them in dialogue with things that are already part of the collection. So we recently sold a just fabulous painting of a woman that was called Marie Laveau from New Orleans. And it was a mixed-race woman with dark skin wearing a hair wrap, and she was just beautiful and strong and powerful. And we did some research on this work. Other folks did some research on this work. And it ended up at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. So that was wonderful. We had another painting that passed through our gallery. It didn't sell. It it was about 10 years ago. And there were two white children and a dark-skinned teenager in the picture with them. And it turns out that this dark-skinned teenager had been painted out at one point. They had been uncovered by the time it came to us. And the owner was confident that this was a very important painting. And we agreed. The estimate was quite high. And it didn't sell. It didn't reach its mark. It went back into the world of dealers, collectors, researchers. And a lot of very good research was done by someone in the New Orleans area. And the person was identified, the family, the sitters were identified, and it was purchased by the Met. So that picture is now proudly on view in the American Wing at the Metropolitan Museum. So they come in different ways. They Sometimes they come through in successfully, sometimes unsuccessfully, but it's wonderful and interesting either way. You can't see me behind this mic, but I do want to tell you I come from New Orleans. Aha, okay. I can tell you things about Marie Laveau that probably were not brought to light in your research <laughs> because my family has been in the funeral business there for well over 100 years. And so we also have a lot of research and content that I bet you'd find interesting. Well, you should go visit it at the Virginia Museum of Fine Art. It's it's on view there. Well, They'd be happy to have you. I, I think I might just take yeah. a trip to see it. So this is really wonderful, and I've been fortunate because of my work with the Ogden Museum there to really know some of these interesting curators and stories, and it's actually what developed my interest in starting Artsville and connecting both the art and the history and the people and providing new opportunities for artists. So this is really fun for me to hear this. And it does remind me of another story, and it's one that's very interesting. One of my childhood friends, her name is Susan Hirschfield, and she was introduced to a wonderful artist, Jim McDowell, who lives here at Weaverville near Asheville. And he does phenomenal face jugs, and they are based on the legacy of his family, who he honors. He's a wonderful storyteller. And I understand that there is a curator 
a specialist in furniture and decorative arts, Polly Roman Smith, who traveled to a, a conference in Williamsburg and got to know about a show or got to attend a show called I Made This, Black Artists and Artisans Conference. Mm -hmm. And it focused on the work of Black American artists and artisans. And in particular, a 19th century Edgeville, South Carolina, enslaved potter named David Drake, who I knew about because of Jim McDowell but whose written word and inscriptions basically defied laws prohibiting literacy for enslaved people, which was considered a tangible act of resistance. But it's as relevant today, and particularly in the collecting world today, with the emergence of importance of Black artists and emerging Black artists. I would call Jim really a mid-level artist. He's not so emerging <laughs> at this point. But talk to me a little bit about your relationship with Jim. Well, I came to know Jim's work a little bit when I was taking a ceramics class here in Asheville at Odyssey, which is a wonderful studio down by the River Arts District. And we were going to be making face vessels. And in order to sort of set the stage, the instructor took us on a tour of the internet looking at face vessels, but also included watching some videos of Jim making his work and talking about his work. Now, I was already familiar with face vessels because we have handled a number of David Drake's pots and quite a lot of Edgefield and other ceramic artists from the South at Brunk Auctions. But as you can imagine, David Drake's work is in very high demand right now. So it was interesting to see Jim's work and then incorporate that into what we were doing in the class. And then just right on the heels of that, I was helping out with a benefit auction for an organization here called Open Doors. And sure enough, he had donated a number of works Jim had to be sold. And I walked into the sale room and Jim's work was there on the stage. And my husband, Andrew, was auctioneering. And I couldn't help myself. My arm just shot up and I yelled, bidding, you know, <laughs> from the back of the room. So his pot is now on my mantle. And it's wonderful. I mean, it's really, his work is amazing stuff, but it all comes together. You know, David Drake's work is in institutions. Their institutions are looking for it. People are talking about his work. And, you know, Jim is doing a great job bringing awareness to these traditions through his work. Well, what is so wonderful about Jim is, first of all, he is very upfront he brands himself as the Black Potter. Right. Can you imagine yes. that with David <laughs> Let's Drake be clear. was doing pots? <laughs> Let's be clear. Yeah, right. Yeah. And he's been doing this for 35 years. Mm -hmm. And Jim is a remarkable storyteller. If you, our audience out there, uh, have been following Artsville for a while, you know we have a wonderful podcast with Jim. So you can find that on our website. But back to this childhood friend from New Orleans. So I walked her through our Artsville Gallery last year and showed her these face jugs, which also have not only 
The work is brave, it's sharp, it's very thought-provoking, but it also has words written on the back, just like David Drake's Mm -hmm. did. Well, she said, I'll buy this piece. And I said, great. Jim will be thrilled. We're thrilled. And then she called me later and she said, we would like to donate a piece of Jim's work to the Nasher Museum, which is on the Duke College campus. And Susan and her wonderful husband, Michael, have been very engaged with them for years as collectors and supporters. And there they have a wonderful exhibit. I encourage anybody to go online and see about it and collecting artists of African descent. It's a really beautiful collection they have. So that was accessioned into the collection at the Nasher. And then just a few months ago, Susan called me back and she said, you know that piece we bought from you? I would like to see if the Ogden Museum in New Orleans is interested in having that piece. And we just heard from the Ogden, and now it's going to be a session into the Ogden Museum in New Orleans, where Susan and I both come from. So it's a really wonderful story, but it also shows how art moves around and in the importance of the history, the statement itself as it goes to a museum or as it goes into a private collection like yours at home. And so this is a really good example of what we've been talking about and how active you and your staff must be traveling around the country to do all of this. Yeah, we are all over the country. And it's great fun to be able to work with institutions and collectors and you know, to get called for this estate or that museum and whether it's California or Minnesota or Florida or someplace like New Orleans or or closer to home. But it's surprising how few things come to us from Asheville. <laughs> Collections come from all over the place. So we travel and go where we need to. Well, Lauren, the other thing I know you present your story so beautifully in private talks and community organizations, and you've done a lot of really wonderful philanthropic work. Can you tell me just a little bit about Bronx Community Outreach? We sort of have two different arms where that's concerned. We support organizations locally that fall into categories that are important to us and our staff, so that might be housing or homelessness, nutrition, children, you know, animals, things like that. But then we have a whole other part of what we do, which is supporting institutions and education and sort of learning, supporting young scholars, folks that are coming up and will be the next generation of storytellers and interpreters. And that's sort of the work that we do, supporting these educational opportunities at various institutions. And that's where we meet the next people that are going to be the ones either collecting or helping to interpret those collections. I mean, this is a longstanding family business. And your love of community and of the work you do, I understand, will be coming out, or maybe it just came out, in a book from Bob Brunk, your father-in-law. That's right. 
Can you tell us a little bit about this? I mean, I am fascinated. He was a woodworker and an anthropologist. How did this all happen? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, you'll have to have Bob on, but I'll give you the short version. (laughs) So when Bob retired, he started writing and was writing short stories and writing other things. And a number of the short stories in this book have been published in other literary journals. But the book is called A Question of Value. And the stories look at objects. So each one centers around an object. And what we value, what do collectors value, but what do people value? What do we value in one another? What do we value in society? What do we value in things? So it's not just a story about auctions and objects. It's really a look at what we think is important. And so Bob has been working on these for a number of years, but it will be coming out as this compilation at UNC Press, and that will be in the middle of February. But you can pre-order it now. (laughs) So that is something that does, in a way, tell the story of what's been happening with us and with Bronx Auctions. And we learn a lot about people in what we do because we are with them in interesting times, times of transition. So a lot of that will come across very clearly in the book, that experience of sort of walking with someone as they come to terms with value. Well, after we finish this interview, I'm going to call my friends at Malaprops here in Asheville <laughs> and put my name on the exactly. list. Exactly, Lauren, this has been very interesting. I have a million other questions that time will not allow. But besides giving us how our folks can get in touch with you, is there anything you might like to add? Well, I guess I would say that collecting is not a thing of the past. People are engaging actively with things that they love and bring them joy. And that if you find yourself curious, then, you know, get online and look at one of the auctions, look at an online catalog, come in. And I hope you can tell that this is something I love. It's something that our staff loves. We are so happy to have conversations with people about their things and where they came from and what they mean to them. I mean, it's fascinating. So don't hold back. Just give us a call, come in with your thing, or just come see us during a preview. There's a lot to look at, and the doors are open. I understand that your husband has been involved with Antiques Roadshow. I really believe that first introduction to what it might be to not only things, but auctions. Do you want to talk about that for a minute? Yeah, the Antiques Roadshow, Andrew has been doing that for about 25 years, I think. And it started when we were both in New York. He was at Christie's and doing American furniture there. And that's how he sort of got involved and has been doing it ever since. And that is a situation where you see a lot of people and a lot of things. Now, we have a stream of things coming through our building every day, but that is on a scale that is hard to imagine, you know. (laughs) And he will come back and say, well, you get really good at saying, well, you know, I think you just need to enjoy it because of its sentimental value. A lot of things don't have a lot of value on the secondary market. They might be fascinating. And that doesn't mean it's not worth something or it doesn't have value. The value just 
might not be monetary. But it might be monetary, so it's always worth checking. Well, they all have stories. They That's do. the important thing. Mm-hmm. And the memories and the value of those stories are to be cherished. So I totally get this. I know that our listeners are going to want to learn more. So how do they get in touch with you? Do you Can you give us your email sure. and all of that? Yeah, absolutely. So any question you have or any inquiry about something that you have or just a question about the business, you can just send it to info at brunkauctions.com and you'll get a response to that. You can look at the website. We are all over social media if you want to get a sense of what we do. And our website is brunkauctions.com. And that's it. Well, it's been a joy having you here, Lauren, and this has been a lot of fun. I've learned so much. I've got a lot of work to do, and I might just show up at your auction house. So I hope you, you will. Know. So in closing, we have a few other special friends we'd like to thank this month. One in particular is Sherrod Masters at Art Connections, who helped connect me to Lauren and who provides wonderful tours to studios in our area. We're going to be working more closely with Sherry in 2024, so stay tuned in for that. Our good friend Ken Katara, a wonderful local artist, will be doing a special teaching gig for our virtual gallery of artists in January. This is private to our nine selected, highly curated virtual gallery artists. If you want to learn about that program, please go to artsvilleusa.com. And if you like it and feel that you'd like to be involved, feel free to apply for our spring cohort of virtual gallery artists. And last but not least, I would like to thank Jane and Bert Imke, dear friends of mine, who have been major supporters of Artsville, and I'm just delighted for their involvement in our future. So again, we hope you listen to our other podcasts or read some of our wonderful stories. We're storytellers as well on our website, and if you don't want to access our podcasts through Artsville USA. We can be found on most major podcast channels. Just go to your favorite one. We encourage you to subscribe to Brunk Auction for news and maybe even a catalog if you get lucky. And then watch for us every month with our Artsville podcast. Please contact us me personally, or anybody on my staff, if you have any questions or want to get involved in Artsville. And until next month, this is Louise Glickman, your host, signing off. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for listening to the Artsville podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share it with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Artsville is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles in partnership with Sand Hill Artist Collective in Asheville, North Carolina. Our theme music was created by Dan Ubik and his team at Danube Productions. Artsville is edited by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Artsville. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating American contemporary arts and crafts from Asheville and beyond.
Artsville, Artsville, the happening town where art abounds. Artsville, Artsville, from Asheville town where art abounds. Artsville, Artsville, feeling mountain high and inspired in North Carolina. That's where you'll find us, amazing artists and designers. Oh yeah, Artsville from Asheville.